Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Oh, hey, before we start the show, i got to tell you about the Allegedly podcast with my lawyers, Bo Bowen and Ryan Schmidt. They got pop culture, they got legal news, they got behind-the-scenes antics, and a whole lot of laughs. One of the best podcasts I've ever heard. Allegedly with Bo and Ryan at thebowenlawgroup.com. Link in the description and everywhere you get your podcasts, of course. And now let the cartoons begin. The Bob Seska Show. Bob Seska. It appears Seska has been genetically altered. The Bob Seska Show. From our nation's capital, it is Wednesday, January 11, 2023, and this is the Bob Seska Interview on the Sexy Liberal Podcast Network. Hi, I'm Bob. Hello, Bob. Hi, day 721 of the Biden-Harris administration, 664 days until the 24 presidential election. Find me on Instagram, the Bob Seska, Twitter, Bob Seska underscore go, and our Patreon is bobseskashow.com. So today I'm talking with author and podcaster Jared Yates Sexton about his incredible new book, Midnight Kingdom, A History of Power, Paranoia, and the Coming Crisis. And it couldn't be more timely given the crisis of authoritarianism, fascist idiocracy, as I call it, in America and abroad. Jared's appeared on Kimberly's Start Me Up podcast a whole bunch of times, but I didn't quite realize just how closely he and I align when it comes to the reasons for and the solutions to this authoritarian crisis. So stick around. This is one of the most important talks we've had here. Links in the description to download his podcast and to pre-order the book. Meantime, Please help support this show by subscribing to our Patreon at bobseskashow.com. Okay, so here we go. Talking authoritarianism with Jared Yates Sexton. More fun, more music, the Bob Seska Show. My girlfriend, Kimberly Johnson, uh, has yeah. interviewed you a bunch of times. And honestly, I think she has a crush on you. So, so <laughs> She is the best. <laughs> so I've started calling myself Bob Yates Seska. Just try and compete. Ah, she is the best. How are you guys doing? Oh, we're doing great. We're doing great, even though she's going to leave me for you. But other than that, everything's fine. So thanks for asking. So tell me about the new book, Midnight Kingdom, A History of Power, Paranoia, and the Coming Crisis. It's uh, dropping at exactly the right time, I think, given what's happening in the in the House of Representatives right now. Definitely what's happening in Brazil, right? Yeah, I, I, I got to tell you, I, I keep hating that any of this stuff is relevant. I, I wish know, I could just I disappear into obscurity at this point <laughs> and just have it, have it just end. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, the timing is absolutely perfect. And... 
without spoiling too much of your book, though, what is the coming crisis? What is okay? Wh- yeah, what is that part of the uh, the title? Well, so obviously we have a lot of different crises right now. We have political crises, economic crises, environmental crises, uh, societal crises. Um, The the problem is that these things are all coming to a head. Mm. And basically the way that the world works right now, sort of the status quo or the system that we were all sort of, uh, I'm I'm 41, which means I was raised up, you know, in the era of American exceptionalism, the ever present American century. (laughs) Um, Those things are coming to a head. And yeah, yeah. we are we are we are facing a new world of uh, in the future. And the problem is right now that a lot of people are in denial about what that is, which leaves the right wing, the Republican Party, uh, their associated groups to be the ones who are offering an alternative. And it just so happens that alternative, Bob, is terrible. And, you know, it's funny. I was talking with Kimberly about this last night. Uh, my career in journalism and punditry began in the late 80s when I was in high school. And that was around the same time when professional punditry in the United States really got started. I mean, there were obviously pundits prior to that on talk radio and certain pockets of local television and so on. But in the late 80s, suddenly there's Rush Limbaugh on the radio. There's there's Morton Downey Jr., who I think had a much bigger influence than he's given credit for. I agree, and that's a name you don't hear much anymore. Oh, absolutely not. But that show was huge at the time, like 1988, 1989. Plus, you had the McLaughlin Group, and then this entire entertainment industry Uh, was built up around indoctrinating Americans to vote against their best interests. And that emerged out of those seats, Limbaugh and Morton Downey Jr. Is that when our current state of divisiveness got started or does it have deeper roots in history? No, I mean, I think that entire industry, you know, and and let's go ahead and throw another name on there. Like one of the biggest benefactors was Newt Gingrich. Oh, yes. Um, You know, you you look at this entire industry where the Republican Party basically uh, sort of joined forces with a lot of these um, not not just spectacle peddlers, but also fear mongers. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, everything from the way that the GOP and the NRA enjoyed parallel uh, rises, particularly in the 1990s, um, you know, with this apocalypse fear that Bill Clinton was some sort of a socialist radical who was going to take their guns and throw them into camps. And what you actually see is that, again, and and, and it mirrors a lot of what we're looking at now, that that fear-mongering and those conspiracy theories are about stoking anger in the population Mm -hmm. that also corresponds with right-wing extremists, right? Yeah. Um, You know, you have the patriot movement of the 1990s that eventually climaxes with, um, you know, the bombing of the Alfred P. Murrah building by uh, Timothy McVeigh. Mm -hmm. And... You know, we look at all of, of, of the parallels here. You have like a lot of Republican supporters, NRA members, those types of people who start becoming radicalized alongside of extremists who are peddling the exact same conspiracy theories, the exact same spectacles. And it it creates a tinderbox, which yeah. is, uh, you know, where we are again, unfortunately. What was the calculation around that? I mean, was there a specific plot or did it sort of get started in a more organic way? 
Oh, there was absolutely a plan behind this. Yeah. Um, one of the most unknown documents, but also uh, really, really important and consequential documents that everybody should know about is something called the Powell Memo. Uh-huh. Um, and this took place in the early 1970s when Lewis Powell, who would uh, become a member of the Supreme Court and was just this absolute corporate hack and crony, um, basically following the 1960s, you know, the the free speech movement, the civil rights movement, the gay rights movement, you name it, feminist uh, movement. When in the wake of that, um, a lot of wealthy Americans sat around and said, you know what, like we're really in danger of there being some type of a revolution, of there being some kind of a challenge against our power and our wealth. And as a result, they rallied together in in this Powell Memo idea where they were like, we need to create uh, parallel structures, right? We mm-hmm. need to create alternative facts. Um, you know, they they basically learned this strategy from cigarette companies that uh, obviously hid the fact that their product caused cancer, but also energy companies that knew since the 1950s that they were carrying out climate change, right? Yeah, yeah. So they throw all this money into basically creating an alternate reality that is more conducive to their interest. This includes um, so-called experts who can say, hey, the science isn't a consensus, right? On top of that, funding uh, magazines, funding institutes, funding all of these different things that were going to challenge uh, objective reality and Mm -hmm. more or less break it. And what comes along with that is the growth of this right-wing entertainment slash news world that is going to peddle all of this more or less to try and, you know, create this alternate reality, which, by the way, goes into hyperdrive following the resignation of Richard Nixon. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is one of the reasons, of course, that we have Fox News now, that we have this constellation of right-wing news sites. They decided that they needed to create their own alternate reality. Which, unfortunately, uh, we now have to live in, at least, you know, uh, against our will. To me, the big success, Jared, of the authoritarian movement in America, at least, has been its media apparatus, this thing that we're talking about. And by indoctrinating now, by latest vote count, 74 million Americans into believing that right-wing propaganda is the news and the traditional news isn't to be trusted— Political leadership on that side can get away with telling its followers literally anything, and they will accept that. So, I mean, first of all, does that make sense to you? And how do you push back against something like that, where it's a media bubble that appears at least to be rock solid? Well, there's a lot of things happening there. I mean, that 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 media bubble is just meticulously created. And there's so much money and so much power behind it. Yeah. I mean, the Republican Party, um, you know, I, I talk about this a lot. They they have no principles. You know, in the past, we used to be able to look at the GOP and we'd say they're for small government. They're for fiscal conservatism. Meanwhile, they want their government in everybody's lives in every way possible. Mm-hmm. They, you know, they drive up deficits left and right. Like they're not even socially conservative. Like all of these things were always cudgels. The only thing that they have now is outrage and fear. Um, You know, this is literally the party of, you know, talking about Dr. Seuss being canceled or what Potato Head is is doing recently. It's all culture stuff. It's all basically scaring their viewers and their readers into voting out of outrage and fear. What I want to point out, though, is that part of the issue right now is that – the the right wing, the GOP, particularly aspects of it, um, they they right now are offering a critique of the current moment. Mm. 
And, you know, they, they are saying this is a system that doesn't work. This is a system that isn't fair. This is a system that is corrupted. Now, of course, you and I both know that they're the ones who corrupted it. They're the ones who made sure that it wasn't fair. They're the ones who have carried out this uh, inequality. But what are they doing? They're covering up their complicity and their guilt by using these conspiracy theories that take the onus from them, right, the the wealthy, white, evangelical, patriarchal uh, conglomerate in this country and around the world for that matter. And they're taking the onus off of themselves. And by using conspiracy theories, they're putting it on their political opponents, whether that's Democrats, people of color, women, gay or trans people. And this has been the story for forever. This is what the right wing, this is what conservatives do. And by starting to break that down and by starting to talk about what these conspiracy theories are, how they work, and what they've done throughout time, we can start to point people in the direction of understanding, oh, wow, not only have I been had, I'm being had by the same people who had me. And yeah, yeah. that, is, unfortunately, is not something that Democrats are very good at because they don't want to talk about structural problems. They don't want to talk about, you know, where this stuff came from, because in part, they are also complicit in creating these structures. The thing that I'm constantly trying to wrap my head around is what this authoritarian movement is doing, and maybe not as its central thrust, but certainly as a byproduct of it, is the destabilization of American democracy. It, yes. to, to an extent, the destabilization of the American economy. So I'm thinking, if there's some sort of calamity that emerges out of either or both of those things, maybe some sort of super deadly COVID variant that kills off half of Trump supporters or worse, would that movement and the people who follow that movement even accept their own culpability in that calamity? Or would this machine end up just blaming Democrats, dulling the impact of the catastrophe, the uh, self-accountability of it? Like, oh, uh, it wouldn't be like, oh, crap, we brought this on ourselves. It'd be, it's really the Democrats' fault. They did this to us because of reasons and whatever those reasons may be that's up to tucker carlson and sean hannity but you know what i'm saying where oh yeah within this bubble they will never take accountability for screwing their own people does that make sense Oh, absolutely. I mean, we don't need to look any further than the pandemic to understand exactly yeah. how this worked. And the alternative explanations, of course, are created within the far right wing. Like, it's not a coincidence that Alex Jones has become cited on Tucker Carlson almost every night, right? <laughs> yeah. It's the idea that these global elites and these liberals have created COVID to depopulate and also replace the white population, right? Mm -hmm. So those sort of stories are continually hiding the fact that, I mean, Fox News literally killed its viewership. You know, the Republican Party literally killed a large chunk of its base because oh, yeah. it was in this COVID denial bubble. But I also want to point out something that you just brought up, which is important. We now look at the Republican Party. For a long time, it was what you would call Mitch McConnell Republican, right? Which is a person who wanted to take over the judiciary, but they also, their main purpose was to take away, uh, you know, basically any federal power whatsoever, right? The ability to regulate things, the ability to make sure that people, you know, didn't run roughshod over, over others. Well, there's a new variant of the Republican Party, which is currently asserting power and trying to take over. Um, this, of course, is like your Josh Howley's, your J.D. Vance's. Mm -hmm. I mean, Matt Gates is part of this. And quite frankly, they're accelerationists. Yeah. 
I mean, what we're looking at with like the House of Representatives, I mean, they are going to push us to the brink of financial meltdown. Yeah. And part of the reason for this, what the Republican Party is doing at this point, this authoritarianism that you're talking about, it is obsessed. And by the way, this isn't conjecture. Um, this isn't speculation. These are their own words. You know, that the, they have gotten away so long with saying exactly what they want to do and not it not being covered or being taken seriously. They want explicitly to roll back the progress of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. They see everything that happened in the 20th century as a mistake. And by the way, that includes civil rights. That includes um, uh, regulations that make it safe for you to work, for new, you to work, you know, a 40-hour work week oh yeah, for the children. New, the New Deal movement, yeah. All of it. They literally want to roll back all of that. And I have to tell you, the quickest way to roll back standards of living and expectations of what um, what you should expect in the United States. I mean, we, we are watching the decline of the American standard of living right now. They want to fast forward that or rather, I guess, fast rewind that. And the quickest way to do that is say, hey, look at this economy. It's just so depleted. Mm -hmm. Authoritarianism is what goes in, makes sure that the system continues, but it takes back everything from working um, for a minimum wage, which they want to get rid of, uh, you know, benefits, Social Security, Medicaid, whatever we, we're talking about here. All of it is uh, uh, made vulnerable should there be these cataclysms. So as a result, they're sitting there lighting the match and, and they don't care what happens. In fact, it's all beneficial to their entire political agenda. Well, here's a good example. The debt ceiling fight that's certainly going to yes. happen, if not before, uh, throughout the latter half or most of September of this year. Republicans have already set themselves up to play yep. brinksmanship with the debt ceiling. They've established rules, uh, voted on Monday night to make it more difficult to raise the debt ceiling. Kevin McCarthy has pledged to not raise the debt ceiling without significant spending cuts, Social Security, Medicare, etc. And what will happen is this. If they end up breaching the debt ceiling and there's some sort of economic calamity, I'm just sort of gaming this out. Yep. When that economic calamity will hit, it'll kind of be, well, the Democrats didn't want to cut any spending, so it's kind of their fault, too. Yep. The Republicans will never, ever, ever in a million years say, oh, yeah, well, that was because we, you know, we yep. played brinksmanship on this and it was really our fault. No, it'll be 1000 percent. Well, the Democrats refused to cut Social Security, so it's entirely their fault, even though objectively speaking, they have all along decided that the debt ceiling isn't going to get raised. And so that's the benefit of having right. this level of mental control over so many Americans. And that's what's terrifying. They can do anything with that level of control, can't they? Well, I, first of all, I want to start on the, the micro level. And I want to point out the, the House uh, Representatives uh, Republican Caucus is, I mean, it's worse than trying to wrangle cats. I yeah. mean, it, and it's always been a thankless job. The last two Republican speakers, John Boehner and, and Paul Ryan, were infinitely more talented than Kevin McCarthy. And even they were largely incapable of holding back this building problem. I mean, Kevin McCarthy is is already been shown to be not just weak, but also just completely incapable of dealing with this group. And on top of that, I, I, I the larger sort of macro level... I want to point out that this economy and the, the global economy is in real trouble anyway, regardless of whether or not, you know, this debt ceiling fight reaches some sort of a crescendo. 
in all of it, uh, you know, I think a lot of um, people on both sides of the aisle, Democratic and Republican, have understood that 2020 to 2024 is a really bad time to hold the presidency and a really bad time to be the responsible party. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, Joe Biden has basically, since entering office, has been, you know, playing reaction on, on all of this stuff. And at any given moment, the fear is that you're left holding the bag when this house of cards falls down, which is, by the way, a situation that the Republican Party has created oh, through yeah. deregulation, um, through, uh, you know, this massive historic inequality that they created over the last few decades. Um, we know that it's booms and bust. And right now we're watching the status quo start to crumble, which is what we started out talking about. Eventually, someone's going to hold the bag. And Republicans understand that because they hold the House of Representatives, that they hold an outsized role in trying to create this calamity, it will look bad for Democrats. It will look bad for Joe Biden. Yeah. And going into 2024, and I got to tell you one thing that concerns me, Bob, and, and this is something that speaks to another giant problem. The amount of people who are already talking themselves into Ron DeSantis as president of the United States. <laughs> and by the way, I'm not just talking about Republicans. Yeah, I'm yeah. talking about Democrats. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about never Trumpers. I'm talking about supposed liberals. It is setting itself up for a desire for a strong man. Yeah. And a lot of these people who now are basically pressing gas on pushing us towards this cliff, they understand that the only means by which that they can gain control, the only means by which they can gain the power that they so desire is to go ahead and push us over that cliff and create this need for a strongman. And by the way, again, this isn't conjecture. These are their own words. These are their own lectures. These are their own books. Like this has been the plan for quite a while. Oh, hey, question for you in your car or at the gym or wherever you're listening to the show. Do you have the Patreon app yet? Well, the Patreon app for your smartphone is absolutely the best way to stay up to date with new episodes of The Bob Seska Show. Every time there's a new episode, you're going to get an automatic alert on your phone, notifications for the free shows on Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays, plus notifications for the Friday after party and the shadow dockets, too. You can listen at home or in the car with just a couple of swipes, and you can join our community of listeners in the comments under each episode. Subscribe for as little as $1 a month at bobseskashow.com or patreon.com slash bobseskashow. Then download the Patreon app from the App Store on your phone, and that's it. You're done. Again, that's bobseskashow.com, and we thank you. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. To some extent, it feels like that uh, it's kind of this, I don't know, nuclear game of musical chairs. 
The feeling is I want my side to be the last person in that last chair because uh, the other side is going to destroy America. And that's generally the thought on both sides. Obviously, the left is far more valid to kind of marginalize this uh, Republican movement that's become so much about, you know, exactly what we've been discussing here today. And so in that regard, it makes sense. But doesn't that also feed a certain level of authoritarianism itself just by the very nature of trying to push back against a larger authoritarian movement? I don't know if I'm making any sense about this, but it seems like, yeah, it seems like trying to box in an authoritarian movement requires some level of authoritarianism. So that's, I don't know if that makes any sense. well, no, I, I, you're, you're on, uh, you're on a very right track, and, and I want to be very clear about something. Like, I know in a lot of my work, and in this book, and a lot of other things, like I, I am sounding an alarm. There is a crisis that we're in, and there is a crisis that is approaching. Yeah, I remain very optimistic. I want to point that out. I always think it's very, very important to point out that by my research and what I've looked at in history and how these cycles work out, I am very optimistic that we're going to win this fight and we're going to have a better future. But I also want to be honest with everybody. There is a major struggle coming. Um, You know, over the past couple of years um, since the rise of Donald Trump, and I always like to point this out, Trump is a symptom. He's not the disease. And for the longest time, everybody wanted to try and convince themselves that if only Donald Trump was impeached or if only the Mueller report said the right thing or if only he was indicted or, you know, if only there was like some sort of a savior that'd come along and say the right thing or there'd be the right maneuver or whatever, that this suddenly would fix itself. And what history tells us is that that is not true. When we reach these moments of crises, there is an escalation and in the two sort of parts they polarize one another. Yeah. And yeah. as there is like the growth of right-wing uh, authoritarianism, there's going to be a left-wing counterbalance of an argument. We haven't even seen the beginning of that yet, huh. right? We, we, we've we seen sort of a liberal response to it, which is let's reignite our faith in institutions. Um, in large part, the Democratic Party has been reduced to saying, hey, if everybody can just calm down, things will figure themselves out, right? <laughs> and... There's going to be a left-wing alternative. That's just going to happen. And eventually, like, I would recommend for anybody who's interested in this type of stuff, go and look at things like the Spanish Civil War. Mm-hmm. Go and take a look at what happened in uh, Germany in the interwar period. And those things, they went ended up going in the direction of right-wing authoritarianism because a lot of people weren't willing to really sit up and understand what the problem was, right? Yeah. They weren't able to say, this is what the right-wing is doing. Here's the danger that they pose. But when you recognize it, when you understand that there's going to be a clash, like there's there's no way you're going to deal with this Republican Party or this international authoritarian movement. It's not going to just slink away and admit defeat. Right. Exactly. There's not going to be a speech. There's not going to be a phrase. There's not going to be a legal maneuver that makes it all simply disappear. I wish that was the case. It would certainly uh, get rid of a lot of anxiety and a lot of fear, and hopefully it would get rid of bloodshed. But there's going to be a clash. Yeah. And what comes out of that clash, unfortunately, is going to determine not just our future, but the future of our children, our grandchildren, future generations. And when you take into consideration things like climate change, which is going to exacerbate this problem, um, you, you, you really need to understand that this fight is, is for all the marbles. It's, it's for everything. 
Yeah, and you know what? I absolutely agree with you. And it's a difficult thing to kind of contend with from a personal, psychological, emotional, analytical point of view. One of the things that I'm uh, hopeful about is the Joe Biden presidency. And quite honestly, the Democrats on the Hill as well are trying to remain lashed to the helm of institutionalism and traditional American politics, sort of pre-9-11 style politics or pre-Trump politics. And so in that regard, do you feel as though that's just staving off the inevitable? Or in some way, can that create, for lack of a better term, a tangent in the space-time continuum and launch us off onto a better path? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, so I, here, here's where I see where, where things are at this moment. So uh, to give people like a quick historical context, um, you know, they, we, we lived in the post-World War II era and what we now consider the New Deal consensus, right? Yeah, yeah. It's the idea that the government is supposed to make sure that your lives are better, uh, that people in the richest country in the history of the world world aren't going to fall into abject poverty, that, you know, old and disabled people are going to to have safety and the children should be children, you know, and that you should have hope that your life and the life of your children are are going to get better, yeah. that there is an opportunity there for those things to happen. In the 1980s, 1990s, and you can trace this through Ronald Reagan, even the presidency of Bill Clinton, you can go ahead and take a look at a new consensus, a neoliberal consensus. And this was the idea that we have to start taking uh, money away from those programs, that it's bad for the government to invest in those programs, that we should just uh, basically redistribute trillions of dollars from, you know, working people to people like Elon Musk. Right. Mm -hmm. There's a reason why in the 80s and 90s you had millionaires who would have private planes and now you have billionaires who have private space agencies. Right. (laughs) Yeah, well put. So so here's the thing. There are a couple of alternatives here. There are a couple of different paths that, that we can go on. And this is what I discovered writing the book. We either can return to the New Deal consensus. And that's very – it's not easily done. You have to combat billionaires. You have to combat corporations that have outgrown the nation states that birthed them. You have to tax people. You have to actually start investing in programs that make people's lives better. And I have to tell you, that will curb the authoritarian fever because one of the things that people like FDR realized was it's not great when you have a bunch of out-of-work men sitting around getting pissed off. Right. Because the next thing you know, they're putting on an armband and goose stepping down Main Street. (laughs) And if if you can go ahead and give people hope and faith in institutions. And and, and by the way, there's a reason why we don't have faith in institutions right now. You know, Mm. they have not served correctly. They have served the whims of white, wealthy, evangelical men. And. If we can go ahead and reinvest and and pull back from that, that neoliberal consensus, I think the difference would be massive. But if we don't, if we continue going down this road, just kind of pretending like everything's okay and allowing the right to continue radicalizing these people, there's going to be a bigger clash. Mm -hmm. And then, then the question, going back to what you were saying, is going to be which extreme are we going toward? Right. Are we going to go to authoritarian right wing, not just evangelical rule, but Bob, I hate to tell you, the right wing right now is basically creating its own Marxism. Right. It's the idea of like nationalizing everything and using the state as like a, a weapon of power, which is a brand new, almost Chinese style, like dictatorship. 
right? Yeah. Or all of a sudden we're talking about redistribution on a level that like you and I, I don't even think could wrap our heads around. <laughs> and I got to tell you, I, I, I think it probably behooves us to go ahead and maybe try to go back to a system that has worked recently uh, that seemed to function and seemed to keep order and, and, and keep the institutions functioning. Mm -hmm. that, that's personally where I see it. That, that's, that's where I think that we need to go. But what you just said about the pre-9-11 politics, um, I, I think that you're exactly right. We have a Democratic Party that is largely still functioning in the 20th century. And now it's time to start questioning where we can go and especially where we should go. Yeah, I think there's some moves along those lines to evolve beyond that. And quite honestly, we've yep. seen some benefits of that. Certainly, Joe Biden has done quite well legislatively uh, during his first two years. That's encouraging. The Democratic Party seems to be cohesive, even though it's become this giant tent party that now includes yep some moderate conservatives, some never Trumpers specifically, that's a gigantic tent. So there are some yes. encouraging signs that the Democrats are adapting to the times and that's all good. But you keep mentioning this thing, the clash, the coming clash. What specifically does the clash look like? Let's say keep things keep going the way they've been going. And finally, there's some sort of eruption. Is it strictly political or is it more of what we've started to see, which are uh, demonstrations of uh, political terrorism in this country? What is the overall view of the clash? What, what does that look like? Yeah, so there, there's a couple of ways that this can go. You know, I, I, I think whenever um, there last year, give or take, I think you probably remember this, too. There was a rash of articles and conversations that were just like, are we heading towards a new civil war? Right. Right. Yeah. And, and inevitably, the, what, what goes in the mind is, you know, you're out on a battlefield with muskets. And, <laughs> and that's not what we're. Yeah, no. that's not where we're at. Nope. Um if I if I had to guess right now, if this thing does continue to develop along the lines and it continues to escalate, I mean, I think things like January 6th are, are not just going to be, um, you know, blips on a radar, these weird moments. Um, they're going to receive the financial backing of some incredibly wealthy people, mm -hmm. which is, um, you know, how January 6th worked. But also there are still a lot of people who are sitting back and waiting to see what is happening. And I think, again, going to Ron DeSantis, I think that he provides a really, really attractive uh, target for donors. You know, he's a lot more competent than Donald Trump. He won't embarrass them like Donald Trump. And he has his own ideology. But I think a lot of what we're seeing is what some people would refer to as balkanization. Yes, exactly. Um, the, the idea that, of course, there are red states and blue states. And I think I think what happened with Roe v. Wade is really instructive in terms of like what that could look like. Mm -hmm. I think for a long time, people said if Roe v. Wade was ever struck down by the Republican Party in their courts, that there would be blood in the streets, right? Never going back. There was going to be, you know, basically cities set on fire. But one of the things we've discovered is that in red states, there was a lot of uproar. And in blue states, like there was a lot of feeling of, well, at least it didn't come for me. Right. Yeah. Uh, and, and the idea that these sort of like a red state is over there. I'm over here. You even see these secessionist ideas like let the Republican states go or whatever. Meanwhile, within those states, 
you have cities, urban areas. Um, you're going to start to see, I think, a lot of uh, state independence sort of uh, maneuvering because right now power lies at the state level. The federal mm-hmm. government has more or less been kneecapped. And now you're seeing people like DeSantis, Greg Abbott, and, uh, you know, out, out in California, of course, Gavin Newsom. You're starting to see these governors jockey with each other. And I think you're going to start to see, um, like, interstate sort of battles that are going to grow. Obviously, we're seeing that with uh, these immigration fights where, unfortunately, refugees are being dropped off in other states. Um I, I think that is probably going to grow. And as it does, we're going to see more paramilitary groups. We're going to see more domestic terrorism. And those things are going to grow until eventually somebody tries to take larger control. Yeah. And when that happens is where a lot of this um, a lot of this chaos, I think, is going to originate. I'm so glad you mentioned that, because that's exactly what I'm seeing in all of this, Jared. That's where I'm seeing this going, this balkanization of the United States and most likely deep red states that implement far-right policy, a kind of what's-the-matter-with-Kansas situation, yep. where we watched Sam Brownback completely destroy Kansas's economy. But the problem is, once that happens, and it is inevitable, I mean, Ron DeSantis may be running for president at some point in the future when this happens to Florida or it could happen after Ron DeSantis is done in Florida with you know some subsequent Trump clone who jumps in after DeSantis. Regardless, uh, if that happens in Florida, for example, the blame is not going to be on Ron DeSantis's policies. The blame is going to be placed on Democrats. Somehow, some way, it was exactly sort of the thing that Donald Trump plays with all the time. Oh, it's not the red states. It's not the state government. It's the Democrats who are running the cities who are destroying your livelihood and your way of life. It's their fault. And so (laughs) there's no, there's no win in any of that, obviously, because you're talking about real people getting crushed under the burden of this immense authoritarian far right conservative dogma and at the same time going well it's not them <laughs> it's the democrat oh. it's it's hillary clinton is who who did this to us what has history taught us in terms of how this kind of authoritarianism ends does it self-destruct uh is it put down uh politically does it fade out do people lose interest like a trend or something like that how does that work well, first of all, Bob, um, you scared the hell out of me. The idea that we're going to clone Donald Trump in the future. I mean, we we, 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 we got to be careful. If, if we got that technology, we need to use it to better ends. Yeah. Um, I, I, I will go ahead and I'll say this. I, I think one of the defining problems um, that, that we're going to face is actually already upon us. It just so happens that people aren't paying a lot of attention to it. Yeah. Um, you know, you were talking about Biden's administration with these legislative wins. One of the biggest wins recently is also very telling. Uh, it was the investment of billions of dollars in uh, manufacturing computer chips within the United States. Yes, chips act. And and to point out what what is actually going on there is also instructive and also where I think opportunities lie. And we can also, again, learn from history. The reason why that investment passed was because we can no longer rely on China for our manufacturing. Mm-hmm. And the fact that that is happening, this new sort of burgeoning Cold War type situation, it doesn't just represent that. It represents the fact that globalism is starting to fall apart, right? This is why you can't go in and get your uh, your formula, why sometimes the, the, the shelves at your store aren't full, right? 
you know, the pandemic exacerbated this, but globalism was always going to come rolling back, especially as China became more of a competitor. So now we're going to put billions of dollars into the United States to reindustrialize the United States, right? Yeah. Because what we did years ago, and, and I come from a factory family. I watched this firsthand. All of our factories basically left the United States mm -hmm. in search of, you know, workers who would work for cents on the dollar. Right. Yep. They would go out. They they could they basically they would curtail United States minimum wage and regulation for cheaper production. Well, now all of a sudden we're going to start having factories in the United States again. We're going to start investing in communities. And I want to point out that a lot of this is going to happen in red states. Right. Because those red states have gotten rid of that regulation. They have gone ahead and they've beaten the, the brakes off of any of the regulation that would basically stand in the way of, you know, these factories being opened or exploiting their workers. So all of a sudden, the same people, Bob, who are, are trying to overthrow the government, the same people who are ba like uh, held captive within this authoritarian energy. Right. Mm. The material conditions that created that radicalization are now going to at least be potentially answered, right? We're going to start having factories there. We're going to start having jobs there. The question now, and this is also a, a really big sticking point, and this is something that I've been talking with a lot of Democrats about. I've been, I've been basically beating down the door everywhere I can get to. You can use that investment to go ahead and basically reignite the American dream, Yep. right? You can go ahead and use that investment in these places that, by the way, were screwed in the construction of globalism. You can go ahead and create a better future for these people and a better future for the country. The question is whether or not this authoritarian movement is going to use things like Christian nationalism, MAGAism, QAnon to basically go ahead and get it to the point where people will work for cents on the dollar. Right. If they believe that there is a political movement or a religious movement that they're sacrificing themselves for, which, by the way, is what fascism is. Oh, yes. Fascism is all about making people work for nothing because you convince them it's a it's a crusade. Mm -hmm. Right. It's you're doing it for the nation. You're doing it for for Christ. You're doing it for Hitler, Mussolini, whatever. That is going to be one of the defining fights. And what history shows us is this authoritarianism. It is just it's a death spiral. It is a suicide spiral movement that that deals with the decline of a country by exacerbating that decline. If we're going to decline, we're going to go out with a bang, right? <laughs> we're going to go out in war. We're going to go out with genocide. We're going to go out with violence and oppression. We can avoid that. We can actually look at how these things cycle. But first, we have to learn why fascism works, why authoritarianism works, why it gains, um, you know, uh, its, its purchase. And the answer is that it's people who are looking for an answer and they're looking for direction. And basically, the, the systems of power allow these authoritarians to come out and offer those answers. Exactly. And as long as you can start to offer answers that work against the motivating factors, you can beat it. And that's why mm. I think we will. But that being said, I mean, it's, it's, it's not going to go away on its own. People are not going to wake up one day and, and suddenly it'll, it'll be over. Yeah, there are going to be some difficult moments in the future that we're going to have to endure as a society. And I'm not necessarily looking forward to that, <laughs> especially as someone who kind of got steamrolled in the Great Recession. Yep. I'm not really encouraged about the possibility of that, although I absolutely see your point where out of that, like you were talking about the, the rise of uh, bringing factories back, the CHIPS yep. Act and so on, and how that is tied into 
maybe some Republican deregulation. However, once those communities start working in those factories, they're going to quickly realize that, hey, you know what? Maybe we do need some Teddy Roosevelt slash FDR style regulations in here to protect our asses now that yep. we're working hard in these factories and so on. So, so that seems like the natural next step, the next iteration, right? Well, so on, on that note, just a couple of quick points. First of all, I, I, I come from a factory family, and I have right, to tell right. you this. My, my factory family does not believe that um, global climate change is real because they don't have an incentive to believe it, sure. right? They, uh, you know, and, and for those who are minors, like they don't have a belief in it because they have a financial incentive to believe that it's not true. Mm -hmm. Well, guess what? You start opening up some uh, solar panel factories, some wind turbine factories, those people <laughs> are going to get real involved in global climate change. Yeah, you know what I yeah, mean? Yeah. Um, th there are opportunities there, but you have to recognize, like, I, I actually think if you want to talk about the Bill Clinton presidency, this globalization effort that they put forward, they just sort of expected everybody to go along with it, mm -hmm. right? It would just bring everybody up into the middle class, but th they didn't really deal with the, the ideology, the stories we tell ourselves. And to go along with what you were just saying, if you get in these factories and you're not being paid well, the first instinct is to talk to other people and say, hey, maybe we shouldn't show up to work tomorrow. Right. right. It's it's to start gaining this. And, and by the way, we're we're at the burgeoning of a new labor movement right now. Yeah. And yeah. and that's not even Democrat. That's not left. Right. That's not blue. Red. That's everybody. That mm -hmm. is just happening across the board. That is the natural instinct. But what keeps people from doing that is twofold. It's one, that story, that Christian nationalist, right-wing authoritarian ideology, right? You're doing this for a religious purpose, mm -hmm. right? And that's what goes ahead and squares the circle for people. But the other part is, can you surveil people? Can you use law enforcement? Can you use technologies that were created in China to carry out a genocide against the Uyghurs, which, by the way, are all coming to the United States right now? Can you surveil those people and keep them disciplined? And I don't think people understand exactly what's at stake here, which is all of this is going to come to pass. It's what do we do with it? Yep. And, and what conversations do we need to have now that are going to affect us for the next 20 years? All right. One last break. Back with more Jared Yates Sexton right after these words. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery Starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs. Now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. The way I see it, the intrinsic problem with democracy is yep. that democracy can be used to end democracy. Yes. Are you at all hopeful that democracy can endure 
out of this growing divisiveness in this country, this rise of authoritarianism, this rise of fascist idiocracy, as I've been calling it. And if so, if you are feeling a little hopeful, what is the roadmap to reacquainting half the country with the benefits of preserving democracy? Yeah. So first of all, very quickly, I just want to say that democracy, uh, the, the minimum level of democratic participation is going and voting. Right. That is yeah. that is just the absolute base level. Uh, democracy is actually a, a lifestyle. It's an ideology. It's 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 a worldview. Yeah. Um, yeah. I am hopeful because, first of all, we're having this conversation. <laughs> this isn't a conversation that would have taken place in 1995. You know, <laughs> right, right, like right. It, right, when the tides are high, we don't necessarily talk about democratic participation. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I the conversations I'm having right now, I am watching people in communities that have been hit really, really hard by Republican policies and all of this. They're starting to gain. They're starting to come together. They're starting to form networks. And what is really remarkable about it is that a lot of these people, they don't have the education. They don't have the training. They're carrying out labor uh, actions that are beating the largest corporations in the history of the world. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. They're like beating out Starbucks and Apple and Amazon. <laughs> And so that type of democratic participation is on the rise. And I think we have to change the way we look at everything. For the longest time, we were basically convinced that we just need to let government do its job. Don't worry. The professionals are there. They're, they're all good. They're fine. We just need to worry about making our money and buying our products, right? I mean, it's Bush saying after 9-11, don't let this stop you going shopping. <laughs> yeah. um, and, and I think that if we can start to reconsider who we are and how we work and how the world works, I think you're going to see a rebirth of democratic action and power. And I think right now that's where we are. And I think by uh, engaging in solidarity, by calling this what it is, and by actually getting involved, by actually getting some skin in the game, I think that we're going to push back against this because authoritarianism relies on two things. It relies on making us feel powerless and making us feel alone. Mm -hmm. And if we feel powerless and we feel alone, we'll put on the armband, we'll goose step down Main Street, we'll join whatever in order to feel powerful and to feel like we're part of something. But I think we're building an alternative. One of the great ironies of my political career. And if you want to extend my political career into when I was writing for the high school newspaper in 1988, uh, one of the things we used to talk about in journalism class in high school is why are Americans in general so apathetic about political participation? Because at the time, voter turnout was super low. Not a lot of people were even interested in politics. It was just sort of taken for granted. And now we're seeing what happens when Americans are less apathetic. And it's not always pretty, but democracy isn't always supposed to be pretty, is it? No. And, you know, I always say this, and, and this is a source of anxiety, but we need to be honest about it. Something like January 6th, I think, shows us both the dangers mm -hmm. of people being, you know, politically active, but also the opportunities, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, this was a group of people that, you know, said, you know, I don't appreciate what is happening here. Something has to happen that's better. I'm not being representative, you know, whatever. And when I talk to particularly progressive caucuses who are talking about the fact that they feel like nothing can change, there is potential for people to express their frustration in more conducive, constructive ways, <laughs> you know, than going in and smearing excrement on the walls of Congress. Yeah. Um, the answer, though, is that we have to start addressing the, the concerns. 
Because for all of the things, and Trumpism, by the way, was an absolute lie of, of a program. Mm-hmm. He didn't believe what he was saying. But he also, and, and sometimes ran to the left of the Democratic Party, yeah. right? Yeah. And the, the way that he spoke about things, he said, both political parties are corrupt. They've been bought off by the rich and the powerful. I know that I did it. Like, he eventually, of course, did none of those things. He didn't help any of those people. He just stole their money and screwed them over. <laughs> but what we need to understand is that there is an appetite for some other direction. And the apathy that you talked about um, is, is the apathy is bred more or less out of a fear that nothing can change. But also, I'm sorry, but people are not good at enacting change when things feel good to them. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. It happens to be right now that the so-called American dream has been exposed as a total fraud. The meritocracy doesn't exist. And we're recognizing the system doesn't work. That is an opening. That is a window. And I, I think that that window is just flown wide open at this point. I, I'm very optimistic about it, but it is going to take, and again, uh, th- this is always the hard part, it's going to take a lot of work. And it's going to take a lot of struggle. But I, uh, I, I remain confident that we're going to win this thing. Just as we, as we wrap up here, do you have any advice for keeping people motivated? Because I know it's the struggle, I think, is a lot for many of us to kind of endure on top of our household issues, our personal lives and so on. It, it's not always easy to be at, you know, 11, so to speak, uh, when it comes to politics. But we kind of have to do that, don't we? Yeah, it's a. It, there's a couple of things, and again, you know, this is like walking and chewing gum at the same time. Plus, yeah, also yeah. riding a unicycle over a tightrope. <laughs> um, you know, I, I'll, I'll say first of all, we we have to sometimes narrow our scope. Um, you know, the the reason it feels like we can't change anything is because the administrative state, like it feels so large on purpose. That's by design. Mm-hmm. You know, it was it was explicitly designed to make us feel like we could never possibly change anything. So as a result, we should just sort of you know, vote for who we have in front of us and 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 deal with it. But I do feel like if we can start building our structures, engaging in, you know, in labor, we call it solidarity, um, which means getting to know our neighbors, getting to know our community, um, having actual conversations with our friends and our families and our loved ones, not just about what's going on politically, but also what do we want the future to look like? Yeah. Right. It, it's it's building a new faith of possibility. It's starting to believe that we could enact change. Like what I always say to people, you know, we can define ourselves based on what we're opposed to, but it's more conducive and more advantageous to decide what you're for. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And because you know, authoritarians rely on you being constantly terrified of them and reacting to them. Instead, you need to be proactive. You need to build towards goals. And I always say in politics, the victories are, they're few and far between, Mm -hmm. you know, particularly if you're a a Democrat or a liberal or on the left. Um, You have to savor those victories. But as you're working on those political goals, you also have to work on yourself. We have been fed so many lies. We have been fed so much garbage and so many stories that basically try and tell us again that we're alone and we're powerless and we shouldn't be able to trust anybody. We have to work on ourselves while we're working on society. And and again, that's, you know, patting your stomach and 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 rubbing your head or whichever direction that goes. <laughs> and it's 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 really really difficult, but I have to tell you, it is so much better than the alternative, which is remaining terrified and petrified and unable 
to move and nihilistic about the future. I, I, you have to build a faith in yourself, in others, but also in the future. Well, the book drops on Tuesday, January 17. That's next week, Midnight Kingdom, A History of Power, Paranoia, and the Coming Crisis. Jared Yates Sexton is the author, of course, and his podcast is called The Muckrake Podcast. And I've got links in the description of bobseska.com for everything. Jared, this is an absolute pleasure, and I hope you don't mind if I take your middle name and just refer to myself <laughs> as Bob Yates Seska. I think that's... Bob, I, I am such a huge fan. You can have whatever <laughs> you want. You. Uh, this was an absolute treat. Thank uh, you so much. I appreciate it. We'll talk to you again next time. Thanks, bud. Bye-bye. To the bar at midnight, Susan's my right hand. I'm on the water in Mexico, and she is a sand. And I didn't mean to hurt you, but I gotta be what I am. The truth is there's just not enough time in the history of man. So bring out your priest, bring out your book, put me down on my knees. Take me down to the river and drop me in the water if you think it might help me, please. But there's no way that God can save me, no, there's nothing that God will do. There's no way that God will save me, no, there's nothing that God will do for me, now. no. Now there's nothing that God will do for us now.